Now, here's, and you know this about me. I don't have to tell you this. You know this about me, I'm sure. I mentioned it a moment ago. I'm not holding back this morning. Uh, I'm not going to wait until, well, I'll, I, I never had a thought, well, I'm just going to hold on to this message, just sort of set it aside to the house is uh, full again. Then I'll pull it out and share it then. Not even a momentary thought. Having said that, here's what I want you to do. I want you, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to respond for you and for at least one other person. So if something is motivational or inspiring to you, uh, you just let it be known. If you find anything, um, you know, a little bit humorous at any point that may or may not happen, then uh, you laugh for you and, and one more. If you laugh for any more than that, it, it could be a little bit strange. So I'm just, but nevertheless, I want to talk to you and you see the title and some of you, it's an old, old song. Um, don't worry about a thing. It doesn't mean that we're not reasonable. It doesn't mean that we're not, you know, operating uh, with wisdom because we have to do that. But at the end of the day, we have to speak, you know, about what Jesus said. And so what I want to do today, and I'm really excited about this, is I want to take you uh, into what is called Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Now, many of you have seen this uh, subtitle to a set of verses in the gospel. And although the word, and I'm just giving you a little background right here, just so that maybe there's an aspect of the Sermon on the Mount that you maybe haven't heard or thought about before. The English word that we use to capture the teaching of Jesus, the English word, we call it a sermon. But it is quite different, in fact, very different from what our thinking would typically gravitate toward. Because Jesus, as he's given the Sermon on the Mount, and this is going to help you as we get into the text, Jesus is not in a temple and he's not in a synagogue, and he's not in a church building. Jesus, when he delivers this sermon, when he delivers this teaching, he's actually on a hillside just outside of Capernaum. He is with a group of his followers. We know that. And this group of followers are becoming increasingly convinced that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He's not just another rabbi because there were many rabbis in Jesus' day. Here's what they are fully believing that quite possibly, in fact, they're becoming convinced that he is, in fact, what he has been claiming to be, that he is the son of God. So Jesus not having taken his place at a podium much like this or, or at a lectern. He is in the midst of them. And some believe that Jesus is actually seated when he del delivers a sermon on the mount because that was the common custom for rabbis or teachers in that day. And as he stands or, or sits, he has stood probably at this point, he's seated. And as he begins teaching, the people are hanging on his every word. And the Gospels tell us why they're hanging on his every word. Because nobody has ever taught like Jesus taught. Uh, nobody has ever taught with such power, with such authority. In fact, it says in the Gospels, you know, our teachers, the rabbis, the people that we normally hear teach, they, they've never taught with this kind of power and authority and really clarity. And in the case of Jesus, with such love and hope. And long before, and I, I thought this was interesting while working on this talk, long before the modern church ever, era ever thought about like props and visuals to cause illustrations and truths to come alive, Jesus actually perfected them centuries before. And in the verses that we're about to take a look at today, as Jesus taught, he probably, uh, for a visual sake, pointed out to a flock of birds that flew overhead and flowers that actually dotted the, mount, the mountainside where he is teaching from. Now, the Sermon of the Mount. 
Uh, many of you are familiar with it. A lot of you are not. It's scattered around sections. You can go back and read it. Maybe you'll want to do it in its entirety later. But it's found in portions of Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, but primarily found in three chapters in Matthew's gospel. Directs, Matthew directs a lot of attention to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in Matthew's gospels, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in just a few moments, we're going to journey through nine verses in Matthew chapter 6, which speaks to the reality of worry. And we need to talk about that because there's a lot of worry going around. And I don't know about you, but when I'm gripped by worry, when that happens to me, when I'm gripped by anxiety in any form, my thinking is a lot less rational and level-headed. I'm a podcast junkie. I mentioned that to you. I, I listened to a lot of Dave Ramsey. I was listening to one of his podcasts while getting ready early one morning this week. And this is what Dave Ramsey said. And he, he's not approaching it from a pastoral perspective, but from a financial coach, counselor kind of perspective. And this is what he said. He said, generally speaking, people make foolish decisions when they're either drunk or when they're panicked. Now, uh, hopefully nobody here has to worry about the former, all right? But sometimes if we're panicked, if we're riddled by some worry or anxiety, we don't always make really good decisions. Uh, somebody uh, sent me a good while back. Uh, I, th I thought this may be helpful to you as well. I enjoyed it when I read it. This is ways to maintain. This is how it's titled, ways to maintain a healthy level of insanity. And I'll read just a few. Ways to maintain a healthy level, in this case, insanity. I like these. Here's one. At lunchtime, sit in your parked car with sunglasses on and point a hairdryer at passing cars and see if any of them slow down. <laughs> How about this one? Page yourself over the intercom and don't disguise your voice. I like this. Finish all of your sentences. Maybe you want to try this when you go back to work tomorrow. Finish all your sentences with, in accordance with the prophecy. <laughs> as often as possible. Here's another one. Try this one. As often as possible, skip rather than walk. Here's one. Specify that your drive through how many of you went through a drive through this week? Come on. Be honest. Specify that your drive through order is to go. Just let them know. How about this one? Sing along at the opera. That's a good one. I like this. Five days in advance. You could try this. Five days in advance. Tell your friends you can't attend their party because you're not in the mood. Just go ahead and tell them. Here's one of my favorites. When the money comes out of the ATM, start screaming, I won, I won, I won. Here's one. One more. When leaving the zoo, start running towards the parking lot, yelling, run for your lives. They're all loose. Just try it. And there's ways to maintain a healthy level of insanity. Now, keep it in mind, the setting, which I just mentioned moments ago, pay careful attention to these compelling, hope-giving words of Jesus. And the guys are going to put them up on the screen. Many of you have read them before, and it is so good and is so applicable for this moment this is Jesus. This is straight up Jesus talking. And he says, therefore, I tell you, Sermon on the Mount, keep it in mind, the scenery that we painted already. Therefore, I tell you, what are these three words? I want everybody to say them with me. Do not worry. 
Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Read this highlighted phrase with me. Everybody, you're going to help me out, are you? Remember, for you and one more, or for you and two more, possibly. You ready? Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Time out, time out, time out. How many of you know science tells us, if we just look strictly at science, how many of you know that science tells us that if we worry, it's not going to help to add any time to our life whatsoever? How many of you know it tells us just the opposite? It can cut some time off of our life. So Jesus knew this a long, long time ago. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spend. Look at this next part. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Here it, here it goes again. You're going to help me? Let's read four, four words. So do not worry. Let's say it again. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now, if you and I just simply read this, and we just think this was for the people gathered outside of Capernaum on that day when Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount, and we just say, well, good for them, yay for them, that's great, then we miss the point. We miss the purpose of this being in the Bible. How many of you know that when Jesus said this, what we just saw on the screen, it was not just for those seated, listening to him teaching. How many of you know that it's for you and me right here, right now, today? This is for us. And so as we take a little time now to examine these verses, there are two things I want to point out before we're done that are found here that Jesus wants us to grasp. And you may want to write them down somewhere. Here you go. First one is simply this. Worry is not part of God's plan for your life. Worry is not a part of God's plan for your life. It just simply isn't. It, God doesn't want us to live lives that way. Uh, in fact, maybe you'll look at your, your neighbor right now and just say, God doesn't want you to worry. Just look at him left, right. Just say, God doesn't want you. Just tell him. And, and, um, and then you can say, even though you were just in my space with your breath and everything, I'm still not going to worry. All right. I'm just not. God doesn't want you to worry. Do not worry about your life. Now, there are occasional occurrences. We know this. That certainly should concern us. There's no doubt about that. How many of you remember 9-11? How many of you remember when all of that was going down? I remember where I was standing when 9-11 was playing out. And I mean everything, first tower, second tower, Pentagon, and I mean plane. And I remember standing there where I was at, in fact, getting ready to be a part of a meeting. But I remember then standing, watching the TV and just saying, when is this going to end? So if it's been these two buildings in New York City, if it's been the Pentagon, if it's been in all the other, I mean, we, we would have to be an absolute foolish person to not have great concern when all of that was going on. What about uh, living right here in the state of Florida when we hear the approaching of like a category four, category five storm and we're following all the spaghetti models to see where it's going to go? I mean, to just say, you know what, I'm not concerned about that whatsoever. It's not dealing in 
reality. When somebody receives a disheartening health diagnosis, if they just say, well, you know, I know it sounds serious, but I'm not going to take it serious. Well, that's, that's not wisdom. And certainly with a coronavirus or a tumbling stock market and everything that's going on, when we hear about people that are sick in this part of the world, in this part of the world, on cases, whatever it is now, 2,200 that are going on. So uh, it doesn't mean that we're not concerned. You can, how many of you know this? You can be a person of faith. You cannot be motivated by worry. But how many of you know it's still okay to be concerned about things? That's just normal. Now, did you know that God designed our bodies to respond to a crisis? A number of years ago, I read this in a book, and I brought it uh, back, and I want to share it with you today. It's some of the best stuff, and I'm, I'll only read a portion of it, but enough that you get it. Uh, I think it's some of the best uh, that I've read, and again, it'll just be a portion that I've ever read about worry and anxiety. And uh, I'll, I'll just read it verbatim. Certain experiences, paragraph one, like loud noises, certain experiences like loud noises or seeing extreme heights seem to be hardwired into us to produce fear from birth. Scientists speak of some fears as innate some that we just have, we're born with, while others are learned. And then this particular author quotes comedian Dave Barry. Some of you have heard him. Uh, comedian Dave Barry puts it like this. All of us are born with a set of instinctive fears. Uh, fear of falling, of the dark, of lobsters, of falling on lobsters in the dark, of speaking before a rotary club. How about this one? The fear of the words, some assembly required fearful words. And then this writer gets into, and I thought this was very interesting. You will as well, I believe. The incredible speed of the process when something is alarming to us uh, helps us react immediately to potential trouble. But it also means our initial responses have not been filtered yet by a slower process, what has been called the rational fear system. So we're alarmed. Something happens suddenly, and it is alarming to us, but then something else kicks in, our rational fear system. Listen to what he says. This is why, for instance, people on roller coasters or in horror movies can be simultaneously terrified and laughing at the same time. The primitive fear system is screaming that we're in danger. It's so good while the rational fear system tells us we're okay. When a fear response is triggered, and then the, he gets into the, uh, the, the physical part of it, the physical part of it. When a fear response is triggered, our bodies go into action. Quick energy hormones like adrenaline get pumped into muscles in the bloodstream. Blood drains from the skin surface, which is what produces the, the paleness of fear, and gets diverted into large muscles like the legs for a quick getaway. Your heart pounds to enable your body to go into overdrive. The eyes widen and pupils expand to take in the maximum amount of information. Many of the body's other systems for reproduction or digestion and so on shut down to mobilize us for action. But then this writer says, and this is the part I want you to really dial into. If fear only happened when it was truly needed, he says, when you're about to be struck by a truck or chased by a homicidal maniac, it would be nothing to worry about. The problem is that for most of us, Fear strikes us, um, for most of us, fear strikes when it is neither helpful nor wanted. It can be attached to what does not truly threaten us and can become paralyzing instead of motivating. In some cases, fear ceases to be sporadic and becomes habitual. When this happens, we become, listen to this now, worriers. 
And he says, worry is a special form of fear. The traditional distinction is that fear is caused by external sources, while worry or anxiety is produced from the inside. Yet they produce the same physical responses. Worry, this is important, worry is fear that it has unpacked its bags and signed a long-term lease. Worry never moves out of its own accord. Worry has to be evicted. And, and that's a big difference. And we've got to learn the value of that. There is a difference to be alarmed in our bodies. God designed our bodies in such a wise and creative way so that when we're alarmed by something, when something happens that really ought to cause us to be alarmed, our body responds to that. Our body reacts to that. But that is so different. And that's an external motivational thing that has happened. But inside, on the inside, when we become chronic worriers and filled with anxiety, and there are situations, we know this, when the right response is to be alarmed. But what Jesus is teaching here in his Sermon on the Mount is that we should not allow, we should not, should not allow fear and anxiety to dominate our life. You see, one of the things, and you've got to personalize it for your own self, but for me, I understand this. If I allow worry to control me, which I'm to the best of my ability and all matters refusing for that to happen, it can happen to any of us. But if, if we allow worry to control us, then it may be a symptom of our lack of trust in God's ability to take care of us. I want you to look at a couple of things. One is a verse of scripture, and so it's the most important. But I want you to look at this verse, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, no one can please God. You just can't please God if you don't have some faith. Anyone who comes to God must believe. When you come to God, you gotta believe, first of all, that he is real, and secondly, that he rewards those who truly want to find him. Jim Simbla, I mentioned him a week or two ago. Some of you will remember because I shared this a number of years ago, but I want you to look again at what Simbla said. He said, what is faith? It is total dependence upon God that becomes supernatural in its working. People with faith, look at what he says here, develop, people with faith develop a second kind of sight. They see more than just the circumstances, what is right in front of us. They actually see God right beside them, a second kind of faith, he says. And I want you to please listen to this the best that you can. If you do not, if I do not possess the second kind of sight which causes us to see God at work in our lives and, and around our lives, then we need to ask God to give it to us. We need to just say, God, I don't have that second kind of sight. I, I only just have, you know, the primary sight that I deal with right here, right now, where I see what is before my eyes. I hear what my ears, but God, I'm asking you to give me a second kind of sight where I see that you are at work. And I know even though, you know, things are real and things could cause a lot of anxiety, I know that you've got everything under control. And friends, if we don't do that, otherwise, here's the alternative is we allow the evil one to find some, some uh, area that he can maneuver himself into our life and just shackle us with worry and anxiety. And it begins to take its uh, effect upon us uh, spiritually and, and emotionally. How many of you are aware that the enemy, the enemy would love to trap us in worry and anxiety? How many of you know that everybody has a weak point? How many of you know that? 
Everybody has a weak spot. And the enemy's not going to hit you uh, in an area where you're strong. He's going to hit you in an area where you're weak. He's not going to hit me in the areas where I'm strong. He's going to try to find an area in my life where I'm weak and try to maximize that. He's going to try to utilize that because he, the evil one, wants to create fear and havoc and worry and anxiety where it's not just alarm and our bodies respond the way that God created our bodies to respond, but we become chronic worriers because we've not given to worry an eviction notice. We're just holding on to it and it's dominating our life and we're always anxious and we're always seemingly afraid and we're worried. And the enemy loves it when that happens because he just moves right in. Um, a, a story somebody sent me sometimes ago, and I'll just share it with you quickly before we move on. I think some of you are going to like this. It says, a few minutes before the church service started, the townspeople were sitting in their pews and talking. Suddenly, Satan appeared at the front of the church. Everybody started screaming and running for the entrances and exits out the windows, trampling each other in a frantic effort to get away from evil incarnate. Soon everyone in the exit of the church, except for one elderly gentleman who sat calmly in his pew in the back of the church without moving, seemingly oblivious to the fact that God's ultimate enemy was in his presence. So Satan walked up to the old man and said, don't you know who I am? The man replied, yep, I sure do. Aren't you afraid of me? Satan asked, no, sure ain't, said the man. Don't you realize that I can kill you with a word, asked Satan? Don't doubt it for a minute, returned the old man in an even tone. Do you know that I could cause you profound, horrifying, horrifying physical agony for all of eternity, persisted Satan? Yep, was the calm reply. And you're still not afraid, asked Satan to the old man. No, I'm not afraid. More than a little perturbed now, Satan asked, well then, why aren't you afraid of me? Of me? And the man calmly replied, well, for one thing, I've been married to your wife for over 48 years. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, a lady sent that to me. I just need to clarify that. A lady sent that to me. I want to encourage you to keep this in mind. Maybe you've never thought about it before. Do you know that there is a phrase in the Bible that is mentioned 366 times? This phrase, 366 times, here's the phrase. Some of you know it. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Fear not. 366 times. It's like God is saying, it's like God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this promise. I'm going to give you this instruction one time a day, 300. In fact, it's like God is saying, I'm even going to take into consideration leap year this year. And I'm going to include it 366 times since you get an extra day. It's like every day, every day, every day, every day, God is saying to us, and I hope you embrace this in your own life. Are you embracing this where God is saying to you, not just today, not just in this season, not just right now, but next month and next year and the year after that and 10 years down the road where God is saying to you, fear not, fear not. I'm a powerful God. How many of you know that God is big enough to be in total control? God is not surprised by anything that happens in this world. Someone has accurately stated this, that most people have crucified themselves. Most people have crucified themselves between two thieves. And here are the two thieves. Look at it right here on the screen. Regrets of yesterday and worries about tomorrow. Most people have crucified themselves between those two things. Regrets of yesterday and worries about tomorrow. But Jesus tells us just the opposite. He said, do not worry about your life. So, first thing that we learn out of this passage is that worry is not a part of God's plan for our life. Secondly, and I want you to be sure you get this. You may want to write it down somewhere. 
And it's in the form of a question. Do you realize how much you're worth? Do you? Do you realize how much you're worth? Now, this is what Jesus wants us to see. It's very probable at this point in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, uh, his teaching becomes very visual. He probably, most scholars believe, uh, because he's outdoors. Remember, he's seated on this hillside outside of Capernaum, and he's got all this nature around him. And most scholars believe that probably at this point of time, a flock of birds goes by, flying against maybe the backdrop of a bright blue sky. And Jesus says this, look at these birds. Look at these birds. They're just birds. That's all they are. They're birds, but they matter to the Father. And I don't know if you notice it or, or not, but these birds are not stressed out. They're not worried about my father's desire and capacity to care for them. They are not riddled with anxiety as to whether or not he will meet their needs now and in the future. Look at the birds of the air. And most believe that when Jesus is teaching, because his teaching is broader than this uh, passage we're looking at today, that probably at this time, he's like, hey, look at the birds of the air. And I want you to learn a lesson from them. And then most likely he gestures in the direction of lilies that are in full bloom, swaying in a light breeze, even while he is teaching. And then he says this, just look at the beauty of my father's creation and Solomon. And they would understand who Solomon was. And Jesus is like, Solomon, you know, he's this guy, had all this wealth, had all this fame. Uh, you know, he had all these clothes. You know, he had all these Armani suits and Hugo Ball suits. I mean, just Solomon was decked out. But Solomon could put on his finest apparel, and yet he could not begin to compare to the splendor of what you're seeing right here. He said, the lilies aren't worried about all that. They're not stressed. They're not filled with anxiety. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Jesus in this passage is saying, consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. And I want you to just wonder about the beauty and the complexity of everything that God has created. Isn't it amazing? You ever get outside of the city and you're in an area where it's just out in the open and uh, how many of you like to camp? How many of you like to camp? I've, I've, I've tried it and somebody intentionally put me on a route where I slept all night. So that, was, that sort of defeated uh, things for me. But I like to get outside. I love the outdoors. And if you're out away from the city and you're out away from the lights and there's nothing around you and you can just look, a starlit night, and you just say, hey, that didn't just happen. There's a God that put all that together. And mammoth galaxies and things we don't even know about yet and mighty oceans and plants and trees and majestic mountains and the various animals. And Jesus did all this, the complexity and the wonder and the beauty of his creation. But then Jesus asked that question and it's rhetorical. It's totally rhetorical. In verse 26, he said, are you not much more valuable than they? In fact, look at how he says it here on the screen. He says it this way, and you know. Now, this is not a question. This is more of a statement. He says, and you know that you're worth much more than the birds. You know that. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Isn't it amazing that, uh, you know, a, a little bird, the smallest little sparrow can fall to the ground. And the Bible says, little sparrow, you and I wouldn't even think about it, not even for a moment. We'd just walk by because we've all seen a little sparrow and we're like, I wonder what happened. And we just walk by and it, it does nothing but momentarily grosses us out a little bit. But the Bible says that Jesus takes note of every little bitty sparrow that falls to the ground. I mean, that's, that's how in tune he is and then Jesus is standing here and he's saying, but don't you understand? Don't you understand that you're much more valuable? 
that God in heaven cares about all of this, but you're the best. You're the most prized of his creation. And if, if God is watching over the birds of the air and the, and the lilies of the field, don't you know that he's watching over you? Don't you know that? Do you know that? Do you know how valuable you are to God? And some of you would be like, well, you know what? Jeff, for me, I don't think I am because I've just, you know, I've just made some crazy moves in my life. and I've made some huge mistakes and I've done some stupid things. And, you know, that has probably diminished God's love for my life. And it is not, not one bit. And I hope that you're getting this today. See, and I hope you realize God doesn't love you or me because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. Does that make sense? God doesn't look at us and say, you know what? You are so lovable. I can't help but love you. How many of you know that we all have times when we're very lovable? And how many of you know we have moments where we're not that lovable? And God says, you know what? I love you nevertheless. Otherwise, his love would be conditional. And at that moment that we fouled up or at that moment when we sinned or we disobeyed, he would simply withdraw his love from us. And you and I know that is not the nature and the character of God. The truth is God loves us. He's watching over us. Our value is incredible. In fact, may I remind you today that you are a chosen child of a most high God, a chosen child of a most high God. I want to wrap this up by telling you about a conversation that Audrey and I had when she was only about five years old. We were driving home from church, and we were just talking about what had happened. You know, I asked her the question, what, um, what did you do in church today? She's five years old. And she said, well, I had a memory verse. I said, well, you had a memory verse. Uh, what was your memory verse today, Audrey? She said, here's my memory verse. And she seemed animated about it. She said, my memory verse for today was, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I said, that's a great verse to remember, Audrey. And uh, so she shared that with me. And so I asked her back. I said, that's a great verse. I said, Audrey, does God ever speak to you? And she looked at me while I was driving like I'd lost my mind. And she's like, sure, he speaks to me all the time. And I'm like, okay, I stand corrected. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then she went on. And some of you have heard me tell this portion. I've told it a couple of times. Then she went on to tell me her story in that same conversation about Jonah. Some of you have heard me tell this before. She said, Dad, we learned today that Jonah disobeyed God. I said, yeah, he sure did. And she said, and then after he disobeyed God, a well swallowed him up, Dad. I mean, swallowed him up. And he's in there for three days. I'm like, I know. What a story. And then she paused. I kid you not. She paused and she said, oh, no, uh -uh. that's not how it happened. She said, actually, actually. Now, her, her word now, she's older than five now. Her word is not actually. Her word is literally. And so I have fun. Every time she, I hear her say it, I say, really, literally. And so we've got this little banter, really, literally. It wasn't literally then. It was actually. She said, actually, that's not how it happened. She said, Dad, Jonah's brothers were so mad at him because his dad gave him a special coat. They threw him into the whale's mouth. And I said, oh, my goodness, really? And then I went and talked to our children's pastor because I'm sure Audrey had not messed up the story. It had to happen at some other level. <laughs> but then she said to me, and this is the part that I really wanted to get to, and she said, five years old. She said, Dad, I believe in God even though I can't see him. You know what? As a five-year-old, she had a second kind of sight. 
She had faith as a five-year-old. Dad, I want you to know I believe in God even though I can't see him. In her own little way, she was saying, I know he's there. I know he's working. I know he's got everything under control. And how many of you know that if a five-year-old can grasp this, so can you and I. And I want to pray for you today before we're done that your anxious thoughts or your worry would be removed. And as we've talked about just a little while today, don't worry about a thing. God's got everything under control. And he doesn't want you to worry. And he cares a whole lot about you. In fact, you're the prize of his creation. And he's like, see these birds? I'm watching over them, the father. See these lilies? We're watching. This really matters to us. And if this matters to us, how much more do you matter to the father? to me. Would you stand now for our closing prayer? Everybody stand. I want to pray God's peace and encouragement over your life right here, right now. I want you to realize as I get ready to pray over you that you are valuable to God, that God loves you, that God is watching over you, that worry is not God's plan for your life. Peace is God's plan for your life. That anxiety is not God's plan for your life. Joy is God's plan for your life. So, Father, I pray for every person that is standing right here, right now. Thank you that they're in this theater to hear what you want to say to us all, to just remind us from your word that we don't have to live in worry. We don't have to live in perpetual anxiety. There's certain things that's going to happen that are going to alarm us. There's certain things that are going to unfold in this world that are going to be... Um, Something that we become in that moment concerned about, more than just a little concern. But God, we're not going to live as chronic warriors. We're not going to allow the enemy to just heap upon us anxiety. And that's just how we live every day of our life. I pray that we would not accept that. I pray that we would say to worry today, you're evicted. You're getting out of my life. You're not welcome in my life anymore. Anxiety, you're not going to find a home in me. And then I pray, God, that for every one of them in his place, your peace and your joy would just come over their lives. We use wisdom because you give us wisdom. But God, our hope and our trust, it's all in you. And we love you so much. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Can we give? Can we give him some praise before we're done? God bless you, everybody. I love you. See you next week.